If you would please take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 6. The book of Daniel chapter 6. Today we come to what is perhaps the most familiar story in the book of Daniel. The story of Daniel and the lion's den. As we saw last Sunday, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians, as the handwriting on the wall foretold. But it seemed that right before it happened, Daniel was elevated to the third highest position in the kingdom. Let's just consider what we've seen of Daniel thus far. The book of Daniel opens with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of the, uh, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, four young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. By the way, in the, our reading, as we read through the Bible this year, in the project, we read that Nebuchadnezzar carried off 10,000 people from Jerusalem, and Daniel and the three Hebrew children, as they are known, are part of that 10,000. Um, he carried into ex, uh, exile all Jerusalem, all the officials, I'm sorry, officers and fighting men, and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. We've seen in our study that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rose through the system to fairly high positions. And as we've, perhaps I've belabored it, maybe I've talked about it too much, but they had two options, basically, and I think these are the same options that we have as well. When you are a minority in a pagan society, you can either withdraw into a ghetto from mainstream society, or you can blend in with mainstream society in a sense compromise, and then there's no difference between you and everyone else. There is the, always the temptation, I think, to tribalize, to withdraw, or to accommodate, reach a place of accommodation, to isolate yourself or to compromise. But as we've seen, both of these are forms of worldliness, and both of these go against what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We are light, we are salt. And you don't hide light under a bushel. So you don't hide in a ghetto. Okay? But also, salt should not lose its, its flavor. Okay? It cannot compromise to the point that there's no difference between salt and that which it is supposed to salt. Um, you know, supposed to flavor it. But if it's lost its, its sense of flavor, then it's gone. So to withdraw is to hide your light under a bushel. And... To compromise is to lose your saltiness, if you wish. There has to be a third option. There has to be a third way. This, I think, is what we find in the book of Daniel. And this is why the book of Daniel is so important for us in 2018. Um, as we belong to an ever-shrinking minority in a pagan society, um, we must reject the temptations of isolating and compromising there has to be a third way we find that these young men were willing to cooperate that is they said yes to the challenges and invitations of Babylonian life they faced up to life in a realistic way um, 
there was a call for action. They were to be witnesses. They were to show love. They were prepared to serve Babylon, to build up its society. They weren't somehow in their, sort of in the belly of the beast to somehow undermine what is going on. They were even willing to take on new names. And there are two things I think worth noting here. First of all, that these names are based on Babylonian gods or deities. Secondly, these names show that they belong to a new system. It's a form of allegiance. So we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but in fact, their Jewish names were Hananiah, uh, God has been gracious, Mishael, who is like God, and Azariah, God has helped, and now they have the names of pagan gods. Some would think that they had sold out, but I would argue what the book of Daniel shows us is that is not the case. Because, in fact, there were times when they were willing to say no. They didn't always say yes, but they didn't always say no either. And again, I think these are the two temptations. Always say no, I'm not going to do anything you want, or to say yes to everything and to, and so to compromise. In Daniel 1, we hear Daniel and the others saying no when it came to eating the king's meat. They would not conform or participate. In chapter 2, we hear Daniel and his friends saying yes when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he can't remember and wants the name or the dream to be recalled and the interpretation to be given. In chapter 3, we hear Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying no, they will not bow down to the golden image. Well, now the Persians have taken over. And Daniel's gone from being part of the royal family or nobility, we don't know which, in Jerusalem, to now serving a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, um, in situations where he's had to say yes or no. And now somebody takes over. What is Daniel supposed to do? If you look at the first two verses of chapter 6, this is the background to the story. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So you have 120 provincial governors, that's what the satraps are, and you have three administrators over them, and then you have the king. Daniel is one of these three administrators, so this is a very high position. But then look at verse number three. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So now a new layer of bureaucracy is going to be created, which Daniel is over the three administrators who are over the 120 provincial governors. And then as we'll see later, you have prefects that are under them. He's only answerable to the king. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Isn't this like Joseph, who was second only to Pharaoh? This is what Daniel would be. He would be second only to Darius. We should not be surprised at this, because as we've seen thus far in this book, the Lord was with him, and he rose to this high position. But not everyone is happy about this. Look at verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. 
So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Apparently, Daniel has enemies who are looking for a way to destroy him. When we went through the series on prayer and the Psalms, I mentioned the following, that the Psalms are full of unsettling enemy talk. God is the primary subject in the Psalms, but a close second are the enemies of the psalmist. Um, And I ask the question, and why is it in a book that teaches us how to pray, the book of Psalms, um, how to be in dialogue with the one who created, the one who began the conversation, is there so much talk about enemies? Um, We are God's people. God is with us. And and why is all all this talk about enemies? And I think I mentioned when I went through the series that I don't think I have any enemies. I mean, there may be people who don't care for me, but I don't know that I have anyone who is an enemy. The psalmist apparently had a lot of enemies, and this is really quite remarkable because uh, David and the other psalmists are living in Israel among God's people. It seemed very unusual that they might have enemies. And what we find is they pray that God will deal with their enemies. And we would probably prefer that it was not this way, that somehow this would just be shunted off to the side. And if you read the Psalms, you will find that they have some very harsh things to say about their enemies, which brings up the question, what about loving your enemies? Didn't Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to love our enemies? Yes. But think about this. In order to love your enemy, you have to know who your enemies are. I think oftentimes we don't think about that. And perhaps it's something I need to think about. Maybe I do have enemies and I haven't thought about it. We're so busy saying, oh, we've got to love our enemies. But if someone were to say, who are your enemies? We might not have an answer for that. So what we find in Scripture is an ongoing hatred of God's people. Here in chapter 6, these people hate Daniel. And we might well ask ourselves, why do they hate him? Well, if, you, if you've been with us in our reading through the Old Testament thus far, we have Cain, who hates his brother Abel, and Joseph's brothers, who hate him, Saul, who hates David, and it goes on and on. Let me suggest some things, some avenues of thought for us to think about with regard to human hatred. First of all, human hatred is generally irrational. Simply put, it usually does not make sense. Various explanations may be given. Various reasons may be given why so-and-so hates this other person over here. But in fact, when you think it out and when they explain it to you, you're like, you know, that really doesn't make sense. Your hatred of the person seems to be irrational. 
The second thing we see about human hatred in scripture is that it is often deadly. Cain kills Abel. Joseph's brothers want to kill him. Saul tried to kill David. Zechariah was stoned to death by the people. This is in Second Chronicles. Uh, we will come on it, I think, next week in our reading. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they plotted against him. And by the order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. Go to the New Testament. We have Stephen giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Human hatred ultimately is deadly. And we see this supremely in the death of Jesus, the crucifixion. It is the very nature of human hatred to want to kill. No wonder John tells us in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. We cannot, we don't necessarily go out and literally kill someone, but there is this intense hatred that leads to murder. Just a side note, um, I've mentioned this to different ones of you before, I'm sort of puzzled by the whole business of hate crimes, as though there are crimes that do not involve hate. And possibly there are, but I think we've failed to recognize that at the root of murder is human hatred. The third characteristic of human hatred is that it's essentially anti-God. It is directed against God. One commentator put it this way, deep down in all human hearts, all have the same resentment against the truth of God, the same love for its opposite to God. Gia read to us from Jeremiah where people hear the word of the Lord and they hate it. They resent it. They don't like it. When we speak of murder, Hatred leads to, mur- leads to murder. Ultimately, murder is an attempt to kill God. You can't kill God. So the next best thing is you kill someone made in the image of God. In Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Hatred, human hatred, ultimately is against God. In the crucifixion, we see all of these elements brought together. It is irrational. I mean, Jesus has gone around doing good. Why do they want to kill him? It leads to death, and it is anti-God. I would mention one more thing. Hatred does not arise out of the goodness of God's creation. It can only have its origins in the intrusion of a satanic mind and spirit and power into the life of the world. Hatred is, by definition, demonic. It is satanic. And in the end, it is absurd. It's just ridiculous that people hate one another. By the way, if this sounds familiar, I mentioned the following last Sunday. Sin is an act of the will. 
It is a decision in the light of God's revelation not to receive the grace of God, not to accept his light, not to keep his law. Instead, to prefer darkness and lawlessness. So, such an attitude, a sinful attitude, is irrational, it is demonic, it is absurd. I mentioned this again last week. The words of Jesus as he is carrying his cross to be crucified. Actually, this is before his crucifixion. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then on the way to, the, uh, to his death, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, when things are good, what will happen when it is dry? There is no rational reason for these men to hate Daniel. But they do. And they want him dead. What about Daniel? What do we find about him? Look at verse number 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. This is his habit. Three times a day he goes home and he prays facing Jerusalem. Um, Why facing Jerusalem? We're not sure. There's no law that says when you pray face Jerusalem. But when Solomon prayed the prayer of dedication for the temple, he mentions this. Uh, When they sin, that is when God's people sin against you, For there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you, toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen, the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. We will see later on as we go through Daniel that Daniel will in fact pray a prayer of confession. Um, Prayer of confession is not only for the individual. He prays for his people. And if the the Jews in fact repent, And look toward Jerusalem and pray. Solomon says, may the Lord hear their prayer. Solomon focuses on repentance. Daniel's prayer focuses on thanksgiving. He gives thanks. And I think by facing Jerusalem, he acknowledges that the God of Israel is still there. The temple is gone. The city has been destroyed. But God is still there. And he gives thanks. I would argue that the life of faith is rooted in thanksgiving. As Paul tells us in Romans 1, 
the first step of turning away from God is not raising your fist and saying, I hate you, but it is where people no longer give thanks. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Daniel has this practice. He has this habit. Now that the decree has come out, what is he going to do? Is he going to continue in this practice, this habit of praying? Well, we're told he went home and prayed like he had always done before. Three times a day, looking out a window, facing Jerusalem. I think I would have been tempted to continue praying, but to do so privately. Uh, to go into my closet, as Jesus talks about praying, uh, not to let anyone see me, but not Daniel. He continues to pray. So what do his enemies do? I think one thing needs to be clear. They don't want to get their hands dirty. Okay, They don't want blood on their hands. Um, to somehow do a frontal assault against Daniel, that's not going to work. He's not corrupt. He's upright in everything that he does. Yeah, but he belongs to God and he prays to God. And this is the way that they will get him. So they go to the king and they say, listen, you know, you're new here. You just come in. We think it would be good if you say, you make a decree that can't be changed, altered in any way. No getting out. That for the next 30 days, people can only pray to you, not to any other God. This is a pretty bold thing, by the way, because there are plenty of gods in Babylon. The Persians have their own gods. Uh, and, you know, the temples are going to suffer business-wise if you can't pray there. But for some reason, Darius thinks this is a good idea. Perhaps they turn his head a bit. He's flattered that people are going to pray to him. And so he agrees. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Verse 12. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And then they dropped the hammer. Verse 13. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. They've got the king boxed in. In fact, they sort of, before they... Tell him about Daniel, like, yeah, let, didn't you say, you know, no one can pray to anyone except to you for the next 30 days? And if they do, they're thrown into the lion's den. And the king's like, yes, that's true. And like, Daniel prays three times a day, and it's not to you. Verse 15, then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no e decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. He tries all day, but there's no getting out of it. And what the king has to face is the paradox, a paradoxical conclusion that those around him 
who are zealous for law and order, they want decrees, they want laws, are also the advocates of the greatest injustice that the king will ever face, and that is that Daniel is to be put to death. We need to be aware, living when and where we do, that human hatred can flourish effectively under the guise of law and order, just as it can under the guise of intolerance. When Jesus was sentenced to death, it was by the law and order crowd. They told Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. We got laws, okay? And the law says he has to die. And what these men have done to Darius is like, you made the law, you made the decree, Daniel has to die. We need to recognize that the satanic, the demonic can be present in the places where lawlessness is the norm. We would expect that. But also it can be found in systems supposedly of justice, in courts or actions by the police. As one writer put it, the devil can put on a conservative mask as easily as he can put on a revolutionary mask. And depending which way, which side of the chasm you are politically, uh, we tend to see the satanic on the other, and I think we fail to recognize that it can be right where we are as well. So Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. Those are the rules. That's the law. Verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and so let's go to verse 16 first. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that David, uh, Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. The first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. This is the part of the story I think that most people remember. That he's thrown into the lion's den and they don't touch him. They don't bother him. In it, we learn or relearn some basic truths. First of all, that all of creation, even animals, are under God's rule. And they listen, sometimes better than human beings, to God's bidding. Remember the story of Balaam with the donkey? The donkey could see the angel of the Lord. Balaam couldn't. Or the story in 1 Samuel 6, we saw earlier this year, when the Philistines are sending the ark back and they put it on a cart, but they get two cows that have never been yoked before, they've never pulled a cart before, and they've just given birth. So obviously they want, they want to you know, feed their calves. They don't do this kind of work. The Philistines do this to sabotage the whole thing, but in fact, the cows go straight for Bethshemesh. They go straight for uh, Israelite territory. Or the story in 1 Kings 13, when God sent a prophet to Bethel because Jeroboam had built two golden calves. And his instructions were, don't greet anyone, 
Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. Go there, give the message, and come back. But there is another prophet there who lies to him and says, No, God said it's okay. Come on, come to my house, and I'll feed you and give you something to drink. And so the prophet does in disobedience to God. And then the prophet who lied to him says, you know, God told you not to do this. You're going to die. And as he gets, as he leaves down the road, a lion comes and kills him. He's on a donkey, but the lion kills him. Doesn't eat him, doesn't tear him apart, and doesn't bother the donkey. And so someone comes and tells the lying prophet, hey, you know that guy? He's dead, and there's a lion, and there's a donkey. Nothing's happening. See, this was not a random act. The lion obeyed God's command, didn't bother the donkey at all, and did not tear the man to pieces, did not eat him. It's amazing. God's creation, I think, obeys him far better than we who are made in his image. Secondly, this story is seen as a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. The rescue of Daniel from the lion's den is seen in early church frescoes and in the catacombs. They would make drawings of this because to them, the story of Daniel, this is resurrection in the Old Testament. This is what happened to Jesus. He was delivered from death as Daniel was from the lions. Um, There's also another aspect that in verse number 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. In the burial of Jesus, he's put in uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. So there's no expectation in either case, either in Daniel or with Jesus, that anyone's coming out. Certainly Daniel's not coming out alive, neither is Jesus, because he's dead. But in reality, they both come out alive. Daniel does, and Jesus does as well. It is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. I think that's really important. But it's also the language of deliverance. If you read through the Psalms, Psalm 57, I am the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I am bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. There is literally a lion's den, but as the psalmist see it, they see themselves surrounded by lions. These are men who want to destroy them. So we've looked at the enemies. We've looked at uh, Daniel. What about Darius? We are not given insight into his thinking as we are with Nebuchadnezzar. We do have the following facts, that he was easily persuaded to come up with a decree. Perhaps it was flattery that caused him to do it. He was deeply distressed when he realized the danger he had put Daniel in. He spent an entire day trying to figure a way out. And then he spent the night that Daniel was in the lion's den sleepless. He did not sleep and he did not eat. He went early in the morning and inquired about Daniel's welfare and he rejoiced. He was overjoyed. It does seem that Darius cared about Daniel, but was he also concerned that he had been so easily manipulated by these people under him, that somehow they had played him? They had gotten him to do something to get rid of somebody that they hated. We're not told. 
We're simply told these facts that he rejoiced. And verse number 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This, I would say, is not biblical. This is not Mosaic law. Uh, Children don't die for the sins of the fathers. And wives shouldn't die for the sins of their husbands. But Darius is a pagan. And I think he overreacts because he's been played. And he throws these men and their family into the lion's den. And by the way, someone might say, well, the reason that the lions didn't touch Daniel is because they had had a good meal the day before. And so they weren't really hungry. Well, guess what? They pull Daniel out and they throw this. And even before they reach the floor, the lions are eating them. They, yeah, they were hungry. Okay. The second decree is then given, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. I'm reminded of what Nebuchadnezzar said after the three Hebrew children come out of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. I can't help but wonder that people who weren't around Babylon, people who are like farther out in the empire, are like, who is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Maybe even who's Daniel? You know, that he has rescued him. I mean, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have easy communication. All they know is that the king has sent out a decree. And the decree is, you are to reverence the God of Daniel. The people may have even asked, who? We don't know Daniel, so the God of Daniel? I mean, who is this to be? But Darius as Nebuchadnezzar, both pagan kings, recognize that there is a God of heaven and he is the one who is to be worshipped. Verse number 28 is the epilogue, if you wish. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. See, Daniel has remained faithful wherever he is, if he's back home in Jerusalem or if he's in Babylon. Whoever is on the throne, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Cyrus, whatever the decrees are, Daniel remains faithful. He has remained faithful to the God of Israel. I think this is a bigger deal than, than we recognize. This isn't like, oh, he, he worked for the Democrats and then he worked for the Republicans and then for the Democrats. No, no, no. You're talking about entirely different systems and they are pagan systems. But Daniel remains faithful. In proper circumstances, he says yes. In other circumstances, he will say no. 
I'm not going to stop praying to God just because the king made a decree. So, before we leave things to think about in this regard, first of all, I, I think we really have to come to grips with the irrationality of hatred. Um, I think the older I get, the more I recognize that I, I think I'm overly rational. Everything has to make sense. And when it doesn't, I'm like, yeah, that's, something's wrong. It needs to make sense. And hatred oftentimes does not make sense. People may give an explanation, a rationalization for it, but ultimately it is irrational. And we see this in the case of Daniel. Were they jealous of him? No doubt. Is that any reason to kill him? Um, it is irrational. And ultimately, it is satanic. Um, I think we, we hesitate to use such strong language, but I think we need to recognize that there is light and there's darkness, and there's no in-between. And hatred is in, belongs to darkness, and it is satanic. The second thing we should learn from this is the place of habit. Here in particular, in prayer. Think about it a minute. Um, when you hear the word habitual, doesn't that have a negative connotation to you? You know, when you say somebody is a habitual gambler. You know, for us, habit seems like a dirty word. We'd rather be spontaneous. Um, yeah. We don't want to have to follow a schedule. But I think we see in Daniel the place of habit, the place of practice. And three times a day he prayed to God. I'm not saying that we all have to follow his example of praying three times a day. But there is something very powerful to be said about the habit of prayer. And it carried Daniel through this very dark time. And God delivered him. The third thing that we should see here is deliverance. And I would remind you of what the three Hebrew children said to Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, okay, I'm going to give you another chance to bow down to the golden image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And God did, in fact, deliver them. God may deliver us, our brothers and sisters, from the hatred and harm of others. Or they and we may succumb to their violence. As I mentioned earlier, the sister uh, who has given her life to work in an orphanage with orphans is now being accused of trafficking because of her witness for the gospel. We are not to respond in kind. We are not to irrationally respond to irrationality. Peter said, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. 
Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And I would say this is precisely what Daniel did. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And God delivered him from the lion's den. But as we know, the reality is the church's history is filled with stories of martyrs, those who have given their lives rather than renounce the gospel. And Daniel, in fact, does give his life. It is, the king takes it from him and says, we're throwing you to the lions. But in resurrection language, it is given back to him, and he continues to serve. And may we, by God's grace, learn from his example and be people of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we enjoy the story of how you delivered Daniel from the lions. And even in our minds, uh, paint pictures of what it looked like. of Daniel sitting calmly among the lions, maybe even petting them. As the angel of the Lord is there with him. But may we not lose sight of some important truths here. And that is the hatred that darkness has for light that people will hate us for no reason other than we are your people. We follow your law. We obey you. And standing against that, may we be people of habit. May we be people of prayer. There are times throughout the day when we may, in fact, call out to you, but there needs to be a habit of regular prayer of looking to you and responding to you. In the case of Daniel, may it be true of us, giving thanks, recognizing all that you've done for us. We thank you for the freedom we have. We pray again for our brothers and sisters who struggle. Deliver them as you deliver Daniel. Give them strength. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. It's the beginning of a new week. We don't know what you have prepared for us. But may we look to you in gratitude and expectation that you will do what is best for us. We again remember Kim and the baby, that you would watch over them, give the doctors wisdom to use their skills well. May the baby be able to continue to develop. And we look forward to him joining us, coming into the community of humanity. May your spirit and grace go with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.